Hello and welcome to Falter Ego. My name's Jazz Twemlow. This is not the start of the podcast. This is a preamble. Um, so if you want to listen, if you want to jump straight into the podcast, um, please jump ahead to time code, insert time code here. And that's where we're getting going. There's also a post on uh, Patreon about the purpose and uh, goals of this uh, podcast. So you can also read that there if you want to skip this bit and read that later. Why a preamble? Um, well, I guess the, the podcast needs a little bit of explanation, I suppose. I don't want to just chuck you in at the deep end. Uh, it's not obvious from the title what this is about. It's not called like Two Mates Chatting. The podcast is about ego um, because I think ego is the sort of the master villain, the big bad guy, the one that's pulling all the strings. Um, I've been doing satire for a long time, uh, well or badly, that's uh, up to you. Uh, to decide uh, for yourself uh, but I've been doing satire for a long time and the aim of satire is to try and you know say things and make things that hopefully um, make the world a little bit of a better place and I've realized that after doing it for so long that you know a lot of satire focuses on the outer world you know it focuses on the news cycle uh, climate change the rich poor divide uh, racism sexism and obviously you know these are all urgent things that do need talking about um, there's not much satire that's focusing on the inner world um, which i believe is the root of so many of our problems or i've come to believe that and um, there's not a lot of uh, comedy about it i suppose for obvious reasons uh, how do you make buddhism funny and uh, accessible i mean it already is accessible because it's lovely but i think a podcast about ego and and, and dismantling it and, and exploring all the problems caused by it um, is, is is necessary right now. Uh, now more than ever, we do have a lot of serious problems that need addressing. Um, and right at the time, we need less ego in the world. We need to find more commonality between each other, more interconnectedness. We need to empathize, sympathize. Um, we need to bring people along with us when we feel strongly about something. Um, right at the time we need to be doing this uh, and having less ego, it's uh, frustratingly the point in history when we're being encouraged to embrace ego the most, uh, largely thanks to a sort of Web 2.0 Silicon Valley um, paradigm, sort of a, a new economy that's based entirely on uh, weaponizing ego, if you will. Um, if you're unsure what an economy based on ego means, uh, that will get explored and explained later on. I can't do that now, but um, suffice it to say... Um, that is what's going on, and it's at the worst time in history. Hence this podcast. Uh, I'm going to leave all the stuff about climate change and um, inequality and various forms of prejudice in the hands of uh, the very talented satirists that already exist. Uh, there are so many of them, and they're doing incredible work. And we don't need another podcast telling you that um, that poverty is bad. <laughs> um because it's, I mean, it's, well, hopefully it's self-evident. There aren't that many podcasts about why ego is bad. And I personally think that if you're riddled with ego and trying to solve these problems, uh, it's, well, it's, you're going to have a harder time of it. It's like trying to perform life-saving surgery um, while you're on fire. You might get some of the way, potentially, uh, but, you know, ideally you want to approach it you want to approach that situation um, not on fire. That's the ideal circumstances. And I think 
we can tackle a lot of these big sweeping systemic issues if we're not uh, riddled with ego. And so that's what this podcast is going to be. We're going to be exploring the impacts of ego, how to dismantle it. We're going to be looking at a lot of contemporary issues through the prism of ego. And we're going to be exploring lots of, um, I hesitate to use this word, but spiritual um, practices that can help um, dilute uh, ego's impact on our daily lives. It is. It might. It will be at times a sort of spiritual podcast. I'm not going to lie. Um, but by that, please do not be alarmed. Uh, I'm very pro science. Uh, spirituality and science actually uh, align most of the time. Uh, I'm double vaccinated. <laughs> this is not a podcast we're going to hear about green smoothies and uh, ivermectin, although uh, it might be a podcast where we talk about how to engage with people who do think differently to you. Um, and again, how ego might sort of scupper that, uh, scupper those scupper those attempts from time to time. Anyway, that's enough preamble from me. I hope that gives you enough of a broad idea of what this podcast is about. In terms of format, I'm afraid for the first batch of episodes, you're going to be stuck with me. Um, but as the podcast evolves and hopefully gains a bit of momentum, support, there, yes, there will be a Patreon call out at the end. Um, hopefully we'll get some guests. The format will expand. We'll start doing interviews and chats. I've also spent a long time studying um, sort of Twitch. Uh, I'm interested in taking spirituality there because why not? Um, Twitch is about gathering, uh, g building communities around things that people love doing. Predominantly, that's gaming, but you know, why not talk about how to focus on your breath <laughs> to 25 strangers? Um, so, we'll be doing that. Um, I've figured out uh, some nice ways to do like Instagram live streams with transitions and all sorts of things. I've been studying really hard uh, since I've become unemployed after the moth effect. <laughs> so, uh, I've been putting a lot of effort into this, and I hope you enjoy it. Anyway, that's enough preamble. I hope uh, you enjoy episode one, which is about satire. You might wonder what satire has to do with dismantling the notion that we exist as individuals. Hey, I'm as surprised as you are, but um, that's where I started piecing things together. It's where I started my journey into realizing that the ego is the big villain. So that's where the journey of the podcast is going to start. I cannot believe I just used the word journey twice. Um, can't believe I even used it once. But anyway, that's where I started my journey, guys. So um, hop on over to episode one and I hope you enjoy. Thanks so much. Support me on Patreon. Hello and welcome to Falter Ego episode one. I'm Jazz Twemlow. Congratulations on making it through the preamble. Uh, well done to all of us who've, who've made it this far. Now, uh, episode one is all about satire, which might seem like a strange place to start a podcast series about ego and uh, a podcast series that will eventually lead us to talking about weird things like uh, the fact that we the fact that we don't exist. Um, so it's an interesting starting point, and I can understand possibly the um, the, the misgivings about the trajectory here uh, how, and how on earth this uh, will get us to the later point. The reason we're starting with satire is because that's that's the world that I know best i've been doing it on and off for, for 20 years uh well or, or badly i'll leave that to you to decide for yourselves 
But it's in that context that I first started realizing that maybe uh, there were deeper problems than just the ones that I was talking about with jokes every day. And so for the purposes of retracing my steps, that, that to me is the best place to start because that's where it all started for me as well. Now, there are two branches to the chat I want to have today about ego and its impact on satire, but also satire's impact on ego um, and how satire can kind of systemically fuel a kind of culture of ego and us and them-ism and, and, and a lack of interconnectedness. But we'll, we'll get to that kind of slightly deeper stuff uh, later. The, the more obvious thing I want to talk about is how ego affects satire and, and the satirist and the performer. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say lots of things that are potentially incorrect. Uh, so I'm, I'm very open to being corrected, but this is just my experience. So feel free to, you know, tell me that all of this is absolute uh, nonsense after I've put it out. For the purposes of this podcast as well, I suppose I should spell out what I mean uh, or what I have in my mind when I'm talking about ego. We're not, we're not talking about the sort of like narcissistic, um, like look at me sort of vibe. This is more the kind of... Um, kind of the you know the the literal sense that you exist so the idea of you as an individual and the idea of you as an individual as separate to everything else uh in the world and the universe and uh yeah i think i'll leave it there for now i don't want to scare you too much with too much weird mystic stuff uh, too early on but we'll just say that's that's sort of what we're playing with the idea that you are an individual entity that you definitely exist as an I and the idea that you and that tree over there that you can see right now or the person sitting opposite you on the train are somehow separate in some way. All right, let's continue to to make this first point about ego's impact on um, satire. Um, I, I want to draw a comparison between two points in time. One is um, a really long time ago. Uh, 2003, which to me in my head feels like that, that ought to be like a couple of years ago, but it's actually almost 20 years ago. We're all aging incredibly quickly and we're all going to be, uh, we're all hurtling towards death at a terrifying velocity. But I want to start by talking about 2003. So I had a gig in 2003 in December, um, December the 16th, I think it was a, a, a Tuesday. And that was a significant uh, gig for me because on this Saturday previously, uh, prior to that gig, uh, Saddam Hussein had been captured. And yes, I appreciate the irony of a podcast about ego uh, talking about, uh, yeah, let's talk, talk about how, how Saddam Hussein's capture was actually about me. But it's an interesting uh, slice of time that, that I want to look at. So the reason for me that it was that made that whole situation more significant was um, because back then, all of the kind of satirical news shows and the comedy shows um, that were on TV, which was the only kind of mass uh, reference point that everyone had. We didn't have um, Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. So if you wanted to get, in, in terms of, as far as the country was aware of what the jokes about Saddam Hussein were, you'd have to wait till the, the tail end of the week. So that was like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Now, because Saddam was caught on a Saturday, that meant I could comfortably rely on the fact that going on stage on Tuesday, most of the audience, if not all of them, hadn't heard like uh, this huge event uh, being processed by uh, comedians or by satirists. So potentially my jokes about this might have been the first ones they'd hear about it, which is quite exciting and a sort of a thrilling position for a comedian to be in. There's a chance you're the first person to make a joke about this thing, which obviously today, that's uh, almost impossible. What was also exciting was that I knew, just as the audience had no uh, awareness of jokes about this geopolitical, uh, you know, monolithic event, 
Uh, neither did I. I. I hadn't heard any jokes about it. I, there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't social media, and there'd been no TV shows about it. So I was going to the audience with my ideas to present them with my take on this thing, comfortably knowing that what I was about to say about it is the only thing they would have heard a comedian say about it at that point in time. What was also interesting about that point in time, and, and perhaps this isn't also just about that point in time, um, it's not like think this is different to now because of uh, you know what period of history we're talking about. It's possibly also a distinction between live performance and sketch comedy that you put out online or tweeting jokes and stuff. So let's not get too uh, focused on the fact that we're talking about a time period here. Uh, I think the fact that it's live performance also plays into it. But the combo of that particular time period and the fact that it was live performance created an opportunity and frequently created the opportunity to to walk the audience towards somewhere uncomfortable because you'd have five to ten you know 20 minutes on stage and that's a plenty of time to develop a rapport with the audience win them over and then slowly walk them towards something dark something twisted something a bit uncomfortable by uncomfortable of course i don't mean like you know quote unquote edgy like oh let, let's do offensive stuff about you know trans pronouns not I don't, I don't mean uncomfortable in that sense i when i say uncomfortable i simply mean in the sense of it's, it's something perhaps the audience hasn't thought about the audience doesn't already think for themselves or a way of seeing things where the audience doesn't see it that way perhaps perhaps another way of putting it is taking the audience into uncharted territory so maybe, you know, think about like Bill Hicks saying we should use the elderly as stunt people in movies or Bill Burr saying that we should start sinking cruise liners with people still on them. You know, it's an, it's an idea that you need to be talked around to. It's not something you already agree with. And I'll come back to that point later, but the main thing I want to take away for the moment is that the capacity to be the first person to talk about something and for the performer and audience to be in a shared space where neither knows or neither share a set of um, mutually agreed cultural reference points or jokes or prior knowledge about something. Nobody knows what the others think about something and there's not a generally accepted this is the take on that issue before you walk up on stage and before they start listening to your jokes. I think essentially what I want to say about that example is it, it just demonstrates a way of thinking that would slowly change over time. And to make that clear and to see how that did start changing, let's jump forward to 2013, 2014. So it's about 10 years later. 10 years later, I was extremely lucky to be working on a TV show called The Roast. It was literally a sort of a, a dream come true, really, to be writing uh, satirical jokes for a TV show. Lucky me. Now, I could list, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, sort of positive compliments to say about everyone on that show. Um, so, but unfortunately, I just want to focus on the one, the one critical thing. And this isn't this isn't typical of the roasts or the people on that show either. This is more a reflection of what was generally happening at the time. But I just happen to be experiencing it through the prism of writing on that show, and so that's that's why I'm using it as an example. But compared to 2003, and I suppose more broadly live performance to, you know, rooms of people, maybe maybe not comedy filmed specials, but in terms of live performance to groups of people, in contrast to that, there was something interesting happening in the roast writer's room, as I imagine was happening in writer's rooms across the globe, which was that people started using phrases and justifications along the lines of, oh, if we do a sketch about this, I think it'll go down really well with the audience. Or everyone's talking about this thing at the moment, 
So I reckon if we do a sketch about that, it'll go viral. Now, I think we were actually generally really good about thinking what we wanted to say first and just making it work rather than thinking of the audience and, and working backwards from there to what we wanted to say. But it was the first time I, I'd started to become aware and I was guilty of it myself. So I, I, I lay this uh, criticism at my feet uh, very much so as well. But it was the first time that I'd started being aware of going, well, if the audience wants us to say something, let's say it. It's a very different mental attitude to, to, to sort of live performance where you can think of whatever horrible thing you want. As long as you've got time with that audience, you can win them over and, and not say what they're thinking, but actually uh, confront them with something they don't want to think and make it work. You can win them over. So because of social media, unlike my Saddam gig in 2003, it was almost impossible to broach a comedic topic without already knowing what everybody thinks about it. And then, of course, there's this promise, this this alluring uh, temptation of, well, if I say that too, well, then I'm going to become extremely popular for 24 hours. And so this is what I'm getting at. This is where ego starts playing into it, is that there is this potential that you might become a hero for the day if you just say the thing that everybody's saying or by thinking of the reaction and what's going to be popular and working backwards from there and letting that inform the topics you want to talk about. It, essentially, there's a desire there to be approved of, which I, obviously all performers have to an extent. They want the audience to have a great time and to appreciate them for having, you know, done a good job you want the audience to leave saying whoa that person was amazing but i think the difference worth pointing out is there's a uh, there's the possibility that in the performer's head in a social media age there is the temptation to compromise in order to get a result whereas with live performance and certainly pre-social media live performance when nobody knows what everybody's thinking before you get up on stage you're less inclined to compromise what you think and what you want to say because you know with the time that you have and with your skill set you can say anything you want the other problem of course being that with with social media what you can say in a two-minute sketch because again remember you're often like uh hounded by tv execs and stuff saying look videos need to be 90 seconds okay 90 seconds 120 seconds two minutes max is what we is what's popular on facebook so that's as long as your video is allowed to be well, it's quite hard to say something complex in two minutes. It's certainly hard to say something that's going to challenge the audience and maybe persuade them to think about something in a different way. You really only have time to confirm what they already think. And again, you were already thinking about confirming what they think anyway because you were hoping to chase those sort of... Um, sort of like digital brownie points. Like you can feel the possibility like, oh, today, if I just say the thing that everybody's thinking, I'm going to go stratospheric. And again, I only note that time at the roast, not because generally speaking, that writer's room, I think, avoided that way of thinking most of the time. But it was just the first time that I'd heard that meant used as a justification for doing something. So to me, that was historically, that was a noteworthy uh, point in time. So you start to have this situation where performers are sort of less inclined to say challenging things or introspective things or uncomfortable things and instead uh, go to where to, to meet the audience where they are rather than bringing them to you. 
But why is that an ego problem? Well, I guess because essentially it boils down to a desire to be popular. There's there's this incredible temptation that the promise of social media is that anyone for a brief period can rise to the top and become and becomes popular for a day. The toxic sort of promise of social media is that anyone can become sort of the hero for a short period of time. But if you compare that to my Saddam gig in 2003, I don't know why I keep calling it the Saddam gig. Sounds like I did a benefit for him. Anyway, compare that with the Saddam gig in 2003. The only people I can please are those in that room. And I I didn't really project beyond that gig. There was no thought in my head of, oh, if I say what this crowd wants me to say, if I really please them, they'll tell all their friends about me and tomorrow there'll be 30,000 people all talking about me. That wasn't really the relationship you had with the audience. You were there to please that specific group of people at that specific period of time. Whereas thanks to social media, now satirists are motivated. I'm not going to say all of them attempted, But the temptation is there to try and please everyone and not to challenge them and instead sort of give them what they want rather than uh, enjoying the process of giving them what they don't want but still making them enjoy it. So we've established that thanks to the kind of promise of social media, ego can do its work on a performer and there's a, a lack of willingness to say something confronting and it's far more appealing to say the thing that everyone's thinking so that you get 20,000 shares. It's far riskier to say something confronting that's going to go over the audience's heads. And of course, there's not just ego at play here. There's other stuff like just the the need to have a job. I mean, that, that's that's the other problem with the sort of the current uh, sort of web 2.0 sort of paradigm that we live in is that doing well online is often a vehicle to getting more work. And because more people are using that as the metric of who you do give work out to, then that's sort of a game that everyone's having to play. There's a great satirist called Tom Lehrer who said something to the effect of, um, but I think he's in his nineties now, by the way, but he said, you know, satire often does little more than just titillate the converted And he was saying that in the early 2000s before social media. And I I think that problem has become increasingly uh, more so the case. Again, fueled by the totally understandable motivation that, you know, if you say the right thing uh, and and make the sketch that it's going to make everyone happy, uh, uh, you know, there, there are great rewards for doing so. So we're now at this point where there's a temptation for performers to engineer their material to to get the reaction they're hoping they're going to get. There's not much room to make the audience uncomfortable, so you sort of have to say the things they want you to say. Unfortunately, the time frame you have to say anything you want to say is is usually quite limited. It's about, you know, it's between one and two and a half minutes. And in that time, you don't really have time to say anything complicated or tricky. Noam Chomsky mentioned this in in, in uh, manufacturing consent. I think I, I can't quite remember what he called it, but it's like sort of soundbite-itis or a culture of soundbites or something like that, which was that, you know, when when news shows have guests on to interview, often the, often the guests only have about 10 to 20 seconds to answer questions before you cut to an ad break or before they have to move on. And, and at max, you know, the, the segment they're involved in is, is, is mere minutes. And again, in that time, you really only have the opportunity to express something that's not going to go over the audience's head. So more than likely, you're going to be saying something 
they already think in the first place. And I think we can see that problem becoming magnified and impacting, um, yeah, the, the art of satire and the level of commentary it's able to offer in a, in a digital space. So that's how ego affects the performer. Well, then, if the performer is now in this position of wanting to feed the audience a certain type of message in the hope of guaranteeing a certain outcome, what are the messages that are getting put out and how do those messages help reinforce a culture of ego and a, and a lack of interconnectedness and empathy and sympathy once the satirist is kind of stuck in this relationship with the audience enforced by ego the potential to become extremely successful popular for a short period of time and the constraints of social media and digital platforms these messages that this, this, the satirist or the performer is sending out into the world, what, what do these then do to the world? So this is the second point we're now going to focus on, which is, yes, satire's impact on our capacity to connect with each other. I think it might also be wise at this point just to revisit what we mean by ego when we're, we're talking about it. Um, in this particular episode and in the context we're talking about here, I, th I think for me ego means sort of a, a sense of uh, a lack of interconnectedness. So not seeing myself in other people, seeing myself as totally distinct and being able to picture or imagine that you are essentially just me that happened a bit differently. There's also a lack of empathy there and uh, being unable to see things from other people's perspectives and not even being willing to because you've sort of written off um, certain types of people or people who think certain things or behave certain ways. There's a heavy investment in what I think, what I believe, and a, and a pride in that as well. But let's get into it. So, so how does satire actually feed into a culture of ego? Well, it, it, it fosters this kind of us and, and them-ism, or at least it can do when it's not done well. And unfortunately, the kind of popular, accessible, highly consumed sort of satirical content does sit in that space of being easy to consume and easy to process and not challenging the audience as we've discussed where the satirist is now overly aware of what the audience thinks and because of the the new way that satire can be released online and such there's a temptation to meet the audience where they're already at and also the constraint of having to communicate something in an extremely short period of time renders that communication somewhat simple and often what is simple what's easiest to communicate very quickly is going to end up being a, a rather base primitive form of communication and and one of the most primal forms of communication is is somewhat tribal to an extent so you'll find that a lot of satire and you can check this for yourself relies on generating a laughter of relief you know that i am not these people i'm not that stupid I don't think that, well, X is obvious. So anybody who doesn't think that is automatically a total fuckwit. There's a lot of satire that rests in that sort of space. I should specify as well when I say satire, you know, the, 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 what that, the scope of what that can mean is so broad now. I mean, I, I would take it to mean, um, you know, traditionally it would have been TV shows or uh, satirical stand-ups, but now there's, you know, there are podcasts, YouTube channels, there are people on TikTok doing really short, snappy satirical bursts. 
Twitter accounts. So that when I refer to satire, it's it's the entire machine of yeah people using humor to process the news and turn it into into yeah into comedy material of of, of any kind. A very recent example we'll we'll all be aware of is. Um, the debate around vaccines, lockdowns, and just the, the discourse around the pandemic in general. But this applies to lots of other sort of large global events that have that happened in the last sort of uh, five to 10 years. You know, with, with Brexit, we sort of, we were quite, it was quite an easy and comfortable space just to write off, you know, large swaths of the um, British population as, you know, sort of like knuckle dragging, racists or just you know knuckle dragging morons um with the u.s election in 2016 anybody who was thinking about voting for trump or who did vote for trump was automatically portrayed as some sort of you know backwards um redneck bible belt hick you know and there's that sort of gotcha style comedy of interviewing um Trump voters at rallies and stuff and editing together the, the dumbest responses or scouring Twitter for the dumbest things they've tweeted. And, you know, the, these things are funny. And, and you know, I, I, I would say to a certain extent that that's worthy of ridicule. I don't know. It's a dial, you know. I, I'm not sure how far to turn the dial up or turn the dial down. So I'm not saying don't do it at all. But the fact that a lot of satire seems to sort of completely inhabit that space to me is not, not, uh, constructive and not healthy and again contributes to this sort of us and them scoffing style energy that's not really going to get us anywhere you know there's you know there's a lot of humor that leans into the fact or the assumption that a lot of uh trump voters brexit voters and um and anti-vaxxers are stupid and dumb and uh i'm i i don't know how useful that is as a sort of humor trope um you know i i know a lot of people who are pro-trump some of whom are certified um geniuses i mean their their iq is literally off the charts um you know i know people who are pioneering <laughs> surgeons who who are pro-trump i know people with degrees in political science you know, people who's you know who are experts in these things who are pro Brexit, and in many of the cases when I've got into discussions with them, it's 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 become very apparent that they're better read on these issues than than I am in some cases. I'm sure we've all had this experience of you know trying to argue with a a Trump voter or an anti-vaxxer or someone, and they come to the discussion armed with a lot of information and a lot of like quote unquote facts that they've found. They might not be uh, robust facts they might, might be complete falsehoods but they've done a lot of reading and they've done a lot of research and a lot of thinking so to sort of write them off as morons is a misconception that also conveniently provides us with a sort of comedy crutch something we can easily lean on in online monologues and sketches and sort of funny tweets but none of this has the attitude of treating human beings as a story or have the kind of humility to accept that, you know, there but for the grace of a few clicks go I. You know, the idea that, you know, the, the, the reason a lot of people are pro the thing that you're not is because they've just read different things. They've got different friends. They've had a different upbringing, different family, different influences. 
and the algorithm that they've, you know, they've clicked on a couple of articles and slowly the algorithm has sort of curated their reality for them. They are the result of a process, but we don't look at the process. We just see the end product and want to kind of laugh at it. But I can easily imagine myself clicking on a few things, reading the wrong thing, meeting a friend of a friend who's at a party or something, saying, hey, you should try and read this, and I do, and then slowly my reality might through increments uh, shift in a different direction. And so it's very arrogant to kind of just write these people off and sort of scoff at them for thinking differently to me. It's funny. It's always funny to laugh at someone who's slipped on a banana. But if, if you're invested in fewer people in general slipping on bananas, <laughs> maybe maybe just pick up the bloody banana peel and don't let it happen again. Like look at the causes and effects. Let's not just laugh at the end product because it's not really going to get us anywhere. Jeff Sparrow uh, wrote a really interesting book called Trigger Warnings, uh, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right. And you could be forgiven for thinking, uh, given the title, that this is some sort of, sort of uh, anti-left screed, like, oh, triggered much? But it's, it's actually a, a very nuanced uh, exploration of the, I guess, at times, somewhat symbiotic relationship between the kind of savvy scoffing of um, certain left-wing commentators and how that can disenfranchise uh, not everybody uh, on the right, but can disenfranchise certain portions of the population. He certainly doesn't lay the blame at the left's feet, so it's, it's certainly not that. But there are moments in the book where he does touch on this uh, interesting connection between the two that the most uh, perfect crystallization of that as an example, he, he references the uh, what uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert did in the mid-2000s, um, the, the rally to restore sanity, which, if I remember correctly, was during the GFC, lots of people were losing their homes, there was lots of anger against uh, sort of anti-Obama sentiment and uh, people promising that to vote Republican at the next election to get him out because they were laying the blame squarely at his feet. So there was a lot of anger, but the the sort of the move, the decision to call it the rally to restore sanity, or at least at least on John Stewart's side, I think Stephen Colbert's half of the rally was uh, the rally to restore or maintain fear. The decision to call it that itself kind of misses the point because it, it sort of at the time a lot of people were really really angry. But the decision to call it this, the, the rally to restore sanity, it is itself a kind of uh, quite a clear indication of where satire, in, in my eyes, can sometimes go wrong, which is, you know, these people were angry that they were losing homes, they were losing jobs. But to take a sort of broad look at America and say, look, all this anger is a form of insanity. You know, this is the rally to restore sanity. It's belittling and slightly arrogant, you know, the, to, to look at someone who's lost their house and say, look, I get you're angry and you're yelling at the left and you're saying you're going to vote Republican next time and you're saying, you know, Obama is the devil incarnate. To look at that person who's lost their house and say, you're insane, rather than coming at it from a place of empathy and seeing yourself in that person and wondering how they could have reached that point. So sort of it, it's a, it kind of writes off people's lived experience, it kind of writes off the process by which they reached that emotional state. And that feeds back into the rights capacity to say, well, look at this, look at this rich 
TV host who sits behind a desk, you know, look at this media personality scoffing at you. And so it, that then in turn emboldens the very people you're labeling as insane because you're essentially abandoning them. You're abandoning them by not showing sympathy, empathy, and, and by writing off their experience as a form of insanity. This is what Tom Lehrer, again, that satirist I mentioned earlier, um, he, he has another lovely quote on this, which is, um, I think the, the people who say we need satire often mean we need satire of them, not of us. And I think that's a really astute observation, you know, and this again came before social media, this idea that the satirical laugh is often a laugh of relief, a laugh of, oh, I'm not that person, or look how stupid that person is for thinking that thing. We've seen this sort of, yeah, satire of them, not us attitude prevail a lot during the pandemic. Um, and again, I totally understand it because it's you know, we need to make fun of the things that disturb us. It helps us, provides us with a sense of catharsis, but it, it possibly doesn't actually constructively lead us anywhere more positive. And I mean, there's a discussion to be had there as well around whether satire's role is to make the world a better place at all, but I think it's it's definitely not satire's role to make the world worse. Uh, that definitely shouldn't be happening. And, and if if it is, even to a, a minor extent, there's a lot of self-reflection that needs to go on there. So with the pandemic, what we've seen, you know, uh, I would guess what are they described as prominent figures on what's described as this sort of intellectual dark web. So you've got your Joe Rogans and your uh, Brett Weinstein's, uh, I guess, to a lesser extent, I, I wouldn't know if he was, if he's labeled as this, but uh, like Russell Brand, and they're all talking about ivermectin with a huge platform at their disposal and propagating meta studies and propagating meta studies that have since been proven to be um, including sort of fraudulent studies or studies where the methodology is is sloppy at best and there's an interesting discussion to be had there about you know this kind of culture of radical impatience we have now that you know 20 years ago that meta study could have come out we might have had six months or so to reflect on it before realizing it was not what everybody thought it was but you know in the age of social media it's like oh here's this thing that proves this thing works and before you know it it's it's spread everywhere so well hang on can we just let scientists do their job first but anyway that's that's another topic i guess what's frustrating to see from my side, and by that I mean, I guess, sort of left-leaning progressives uh, who believe in science, is the way and the, the, the tools we've used to sort of dismiss um, these figures who are propagating this kind of misleading or uh, misinformation, essentially, um, by using tools and language that comes from that scoffing better than them space that also therefore writes off the entirety of their their base or their audience so for example the constant description of ivermectin as horse paste now obviously it is used as a horse dewormer that's that's not um that's undisputed but there is a human version of the medicine it is prescribed to people it's prescribed to uh, i would imagine thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people I think there's, you know, river blindness, scabies, you know, sort of any 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 of these sort of parasitic infections. It's, its use is is widespread in people. And when these figures with a huge influence are promoting these things, you know, they, they are 
talking about them in a somewhat scientific way I mean, and by that i mean you know they they they're not saying go out and take veterinary medicine they're saying look it works it works in people obviously they're wrong about what it works for they're saying it, it just because it works as an anti-parasitic drug doesn't mean it's going to work against a virus they quote studies again um not necessary not necessarily studies that mean anything like you know there's i think there's a study that says it ivermectin has been shown to kill covid in you know cell cultures but cell cultures is a world away from working in people i mean you can blast a cell in a petri dish with whatever the fuck you want to because you don't have to worry about whether it pops its clogs you know you can hit it with insane amounts of radiation that would probably kill covid as well but to, to then say hey everyone go and stand next to a nuclear reactor like the the, the dosages the dosage required to kill COVID in the cell culture, I believe, is much, 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 much higher than what would be comfortable for a human being to take. So it's ignorance by occlusion of information. It's fine. You know, Joe Rogan can say ivermectin works in cell cultures, but do his listeners, uh, are his listeners astute enough or well-versed enough in in scientific language? You know, again, they're not stupid. It's just not everyone's an expert. But are they are they well versed enough to realize that that doesn't mean the thing they think it means? And is Joe Rogan being a sort of bad faith public figure by just dropping that information willy nilly? Because I think he knows what he's doing. But to not bother including that additional clarification is is problematic and dangerous. And they are saying tidbits that are in of themselves true. You know. Um, Ivermectin has won the Nobel Prize. Yeah, but for something completely different. And it is used in people to treat something completely different. So it is a reputable medicine and they are advocating people taking the human versions. So when satirists or just the, the general online community who are acting in a satirical fashion, because um, this is also the problem is that everybody is a satirist now because everybody's on Twitter and everybody's making jokes and everybody's everybody thinks of themselves as some uh, like a one human, one man, one woman, uh, John Stewart. The problem is we're all turning up to these digital scuffles and just labeling it as horse paste. Or you're engaging with someone online in, a, in an argument and they're providing you with studies and links that appear to show ivermectin working, which if you're well-read and have done even more research than them, you'll realize the context in which they're the context from which they've got those links is actually sort of irrelevant. But to reply to them and with like, nay, or some horse related pun, they're just going to come away from that interaction going, oh, well, this person thinks he's better than me. He thinks I'm a, he's written me off as an idiot. And he's also, he's actually, I mean, this is, this is frustrating, even though they're turning up to the argument armed with the wrong facts, we're the ones who are actually being sort of slightly more intellectually dishonest because we're writing it off as horse paste when that's not what they're actually talking about. But again, going back to ego, you know, there's this collective desire to kind of guffaw at these people. And it's easy for a satirist noticing that to wade in and also do a horse paste joke. But then that gets held up by the other side as an example of how aloof, elite, dismissive we are. And again, it's the simplest, quickest form of communication and a very easy way to get a laugh and a laughter of approval from your audience and that laughter of relief, 
which again is the most sort of simplistic base primitive kind of laugh you can get is I'm not them and the zero attempt to do the opposite of what the kind of the ego driven ego fueling uh, fan flaming humorous style does which is to understand and to actually explore and investigate and to say well look these are seemingly intelligent people because again I've met genius pro-Trump people, very well ed educated people with master's degrees and PhDs who pro-Brexit. Brett Weinstein is a professor from a prestigious university. And there are lots of extremely smart people promoting these things. There's no reflection on why are these people appealing to the audience that they're appealing to? And what did it take for that audience member that I'm now arguing with online to reach the perception of the world that they've reached? Like, I'm sure you've had this where you're talking to someone online and it's like they inhabit and they actually inhabit a totally different reality to you. But again, to write off the result, to look at where they've ended up and treating that as the totality of that person rather than including all of the, you know, 50 to 2000 steps it took them to get there. If you're not willing to see all that stuff as well, then that's ego. That's you not being willing to put yourself in their shoes and imagine what would it take for me to get to where they've got to, you know, you know, a lot of these people need a sympathetic touch, not a scoffing touch. Um, because scoffing is not going to work. And again, I get the cathartic value of that. If, if, if there are lots of people online and on prominent podcasts <laughs> essentially endangering the public by promoting something, it's, it is, it's a relief to go, ah, oh, bloody fucking Joe Rogan and his horse paste. Cause it means we all get to put our arms around each other and have a little chuckle and point over there to them and go, oh, thank those fucking idiots. It's also, it's also a kind of ideological uh, immune system that prevents you from feeling depressed. I, I remember during Brexit, I, I was posting just as much as anybody on Facebook, you know, dumb racists, bloody idiots, complete morons, knuckle-dragging fuckwits, you know. If you're going to vote Brexit, what are you going to vote for next? Cutting your own dick off. Like, how stupid are you? But laughing in that way allows you not to become totally depressed because essentially you're saying, well, the only way people can think like that is if they're fuckwits and there's no way I could ever become that. So generally speaking, humanity, it's almost like defining yourself as the default human. Like I'm right, I'm normal. They're sort of rejects or like, you know, faulty products that need to be recalled. They're not part of the human experience. I am. So writing them off allows you to sort of maintain your faith in humanity because if you opened your mind and started seeing yourself in these people, suddenly you have to deal with quite an uncomfortable truth, which is, no, these are, these are people operating at the same level of intelligence as I am. These are people doing what normal humans do. It's just that the path they're on has led them to a completely different opinion and a completely different interpretation of events but i can't they're not faulty they're just different and i think ego has a kind of survival instinct or or like a, an immunity system against shame which is to essentially say that you know constantly remind yourself that there's no way you could become that person and so in that sense satire becomes an enforcer of kind of comfort 
uh, it's like a comfort blanket almost, just reminding the people who are quote unquote right that, you know, they're normal. You're thinking the good things. These people over here are horse paste eating Neanderthal Bible belt retards, you know. But at the end of the day, we're all the result of a process and the things that have led me to think I'm, I'm extremely, I, I think the things I think purely by happenstance because I can't take credit for being me, really. I was born into a certain family. I lived in a certain region. I had a certain education. I've read the things I've read. I haven't read the things I haven't read. You know, you can't, you can't exist. This isn't like, you know, the Marvel multiverse where you get to, or, you know, we can't do like a Doctor Strange and read everything and take a glimpse at all the multiple versions of ourselves. And then we chose this one. You know, we have no agency in influencing the processes that make us become who we are. So just as someone who thinks that Brexit was great, Trump is great, and that lockdowns are evil and that ivermectin might work, just as they could be described as a victim of happenstance, similarly, we can't be proud of who we are because it's just as, because the process that led us to be who we are is just as arbitrary. The thing is, we're all in this together. You know, it's all chaos. And some people are going to come out of that process thinking one thing, and some are going to come out of that process thinking the opposite thing. The important thing is to see the entirety of that process and see our place in that alongside them. And once you start to realize that, once you start seeing yourself in other people and your capacity in another multiverse version of yourself to have become a quote-unquote knuckle-dragging fuckwit, then you realize that the scoffing, the looking down, actually isn't part of a solution. And you need to look at the, the process, the systems, the, the chaos behind the creation of that person. And that's what we need to address. I suppose the problem with all this, though, is it's not terribly fun. <laughs> it's not terribly funny. It's hard to release a comedy sketch that's like, now, look, um, Pauline Hansen voters. Okay, let's look sympathetically at the <laughs> the many steps that went towards creating someone who actually is in such a state that Pauline Hansen would appeal to them as a choice at the next election. Let's sympathize with these people. That is extremely not funny, but I, I feel like, unfortunately, that I mean, it's it's just, it's just hard work. But I think it needs to be sort of done, unfortunately. Otherwise, we're sort of complicit and happy to be complicit in just making everything a little bit worse. And of course, I can hear the reaction to this. And I've seen the reaction to this line of thinking before, which is like, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, Pauline Hansen voters, Trump voters, Brexit people, anti-vax people, they're literally putting people's lives in danger, either through prejudice or causing medical confusion like they're they're literally ending lives but yeah people have lost family members to covid but yeah it's the anti-vax people that need sympathy jazz well firstly that's a weird false dilemma that you can only offer sympathy to one person second it's sort of like you're not very self-aware in your sympathy it's like if, if you if you do think that somebody losing a family member to covid is tragic don't you also then want to avert the tragedy from happening again? And therefore, aren't you invested in the solution to making sure that happens, which therefore might be 
exploring what it takes to create an anti-vaxxer rather than writing them off all the time. I also don't quite understand the line of reasoning that says, you know, oh, anti-vaxxers uh, think the wrong thing that's endangering everyone, but yeah, they're the ones that need sympathy or empathy. And it's like, well, well, yeah, they, but yeah, that's why they need it. They think the wrong thing. Like they've wandered off the beaten path. Like, who do you reserve your sympathy for? What people who are already right about everything, people who are absolutely nailing their existence, people who are doing really well. There's a sort of doubling down on that as well. Like, when, you know, obviously there are genuine anti-lockdown people, people who have genuine reasons for hating it. And then there are people who turn up to these sort of protests just to cause a sort of fight or enjoy the chaos of it. And, um, you know, if you express, if you say we should explore empathy or empathize with uh, people who are anti-lockdown, well, then the response comes, yeah, but these people aren't even genuinely against the lockdown. They just want to turn up to punch people in the streets. Yeah, let's empathize with them. I was like, well, hang on. So you're telling me they're even more fucked up and therefore we should explore what created them even less? Like you've just pointed out to me that these people are even more deluded, but that's somehow an argument that that, that needs even less investigation than the people who are only slightly deluded. And I just don't quite get it. To me, it's like being a doctor and saying, yeah, I only treat healthy people. Now, obviously, it's a lot harder to ascribe a purpose to, to being human. A doctor is, you know, takes an oath to make people better. So that's an easy example to make. But I don't know what the purpose of being human is, but if, if your intention is to make the world a better place and to make the world a better place through laughter, then yeah, we might have to sell empathy as a concept through humor if you genuinely want to make the world a better place. And yeah, if you're just a random Twitter user who is frustrated by everything, um, maybe don't go on there and chuck terms around like moron, dumb, dumb, COVID idiot, horse paste. Because though that feels satirical, and I'm sure in your head you are John Stewart sitting behind a desk with everyone applauding you, you're contributing to a systemic ripple effect that most likely, if it's not making things worse, it's definitely slowing things down from getting better. A human being who inhabits a totally different reality to you and has come to dangerous conclusions is a phenomenon that needs investigating and understanding so it doesn't happen more. Not someone that needs writing off with zero curiosity as to how to prevent that from happening again. You know, we have a vaccine for the pandemic. What we don't have is a vaccine for the pandemic of deluded people and laughing at them and calling them horse paste fuckwits. Uh, I'm afraid to say, isn't the vaccine. That That is actually the ivermectin of, of, of this scenario. It's a treatment that in meta-studies looks good. Uh, actually, it doesn't work. The effect of all of this and the, the, the sort of scoffing uh, aspect of it and the, you know, treating people as, as idiots and I can never be those people and there's, there's absolutely no reason to even explore how they became those people uh, which to me is odd because it means you're not interested in a, in a solution. But the impact of that is, is to create or exacerbate a sense of, of separateness 
and I think you know, activistically and spiritually, that that has I don't I don't know of a situation in history or an example in history where that's worked to redress the the problem. And it's at this point, you know, we can look at uh, certain Eastern philosophical or moral principles. Um, is he really going to talk about satire and Buddhism in the same episode? Yes, we are. But the, one of the Buddhist principles is that the, the, you should have a right livelihood. And what that means is that the, the method of gaining your livelihood must not, by its very nature, increase the paranoia and separateness in the world. Well, by that standard, I would say satire is, is actually failing. And again, you can say, well, is it a satirist's job to decrease the amount of separateness in the world? It's that, well, it's... It's definitely not a satirist's job to make the world worse. And I know there's that famous uh, quote by Peter Cook saying he's going to establish a, a comedy club in in London, much like the, the famous uh, Berlin cabarets that did so much to stop the rise of Hitler in World War II, which was his way of saying, you know, satire. It's not, is it satire's purpose to actually thwart evil? And I agree that's too much to put on any art form, is to suggest, well, this is meant to be changing the world. But satirists are at least meant to pretend to want to make the world better and definitely as i've said shouldn't um shouldn't want to make the world worse so if your art form is increasing the sense of separateness in the world that's a bad thing and if your art form is at least pretending for digital or social capital to be progressive well then that's that's a, a real problem if satire and satirists have their heart in the right place they should be aiming to decrease the amount of uh, separateness and paranoia in, in in the world how satirists uh, and the general online community can use humor to promote empathy well that's that's another that's a chat for another time I'm not promising that comedy that empathizes with anti-vaxxers will get shared a lot. Um, but again, getting shared a lot is your prime motivation. Again, that's ego. Maybe put some stuff out there that confronts the audience. I think Tom Lehrer's quotes are a nice way to sort of recap this episode. Um, so his quote about, you know, satire is doesn't really challenge the converted it titillates the converted and also that when people say they want satire what they really mean is they want satire of them not us you're not going to put out a piece of content that says well actually maybe let's try and understand our foes rather than diminishing them and then by wanting to titillate the converted we put content out there messages out there that is satire of them and the fact that the easiest laughs to get is the, is the laughter of relief and the, and the laughter of, thank goodness I'm not that person, which again is an extremely handy sort of ego immune response, you know. Thank goodness I could never be that person. Yes, you could. They're dumb. I'm smart. No, they're not. They're actually extremely intelligent. But that's pretty worrying, isn't it, that smart people don't automatically fall in line with what you think. Because that, that would be a depressing view of humanity that smart people can fall by the wayside. Well, that's true, and therefore it's worth exploring why. Anyway, I hope that's been an interesting and sort of thought-provoking uh, little ramble from me. And I hope kicking off with an episode about satire has, has been useful in triangulating an initial problem and awareness of the of what the role ego plays in in society we've it's been through the prism of satire and what that's putting out into the world but i, I think that's been a useful place to start and uh, as the series progresses uh we'll be using lots of other different prisms through which to look at uh 
sort of yeah egos background manipulation uh as a as a as a as a well that we shouldn't be drawing from in whatever walk of life uh, we're in uh, so that was episode one uh in the next episode we're going to be talking about uh something connected to uh satire which is the news cycle um that's the next step uh so we're going from something that's quite specific to me and again i appreciate the irony of that in a in a series about abandoning ego it was a useful place to start um, and then going slightly more broader to something i hope uh, is a bit more accessible uh, to everyone which is yeah the news cycle and how that helps uh, fan a lot of these flames and just to alleviate any concerns you might have that this series is going to just be some <laughs> relentless uh, tirade against ego uh, in lots of different contexts let's talk about ego in the news and in satire and in gardening and in zookeeping, it's not, it's not going to be that. We're just laying the groundwork. We're setting out a thesis early on. And then as we move to later episodes, we're going to be starting to, to talk about ways of dispelling ego and combating ego and uh, the ways this has been done in you know ancient um, practices and eventually broadening the series out to include interviews and chats with very wise, smart people. Uh, better informed people than myself as the series builds and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that and I hope you'll stick with me as we move towards those sort of later iterations of of the podcast if you're interested in supporting the podcast obviously you can at patreon uh by looking for my very silly name jazz twemlo um you'll find the patreon page there I'll be putting little exclusive audio snippets as well videos previews and i'll also be prioritizing interaction with with listeners through through that platform as well so um, if you want to ask questions give comments uh, make suggestions for topics anything like that uh, yeah priority will be given to uh, people who are chipping in anyway i hope you'll join me for episode two where yes we'll be talking about the news cycle thanks so much for listening <laughs>